Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Music is everywhere. It seems today that no space, public or private, is not in some way filled with music. Even sporting events are now enveloped in music. In spite of music having been at the cutting edge of technological creative destruction, in spite of the fact that its business model no longer seems to work, it's still omnipresent. It's one of the few things that has been with us through the ages and is strong, if not stronger, today. So why is music so much a part of our lives, and what is its seemingly magical power that it has for so many people? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, John Powell. John Powell is a scientist and a musician. He holds a Ph.D. in physics from Imperial College in London and a master's in music from the University of Sheffield. He's the author of the previous book, How Music Works, and it is my pleasure to welcome John Powell here to talk about his newest work, Why You Love Music, from Mozart to Metallica. John Powell, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Hi, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, it's great to have you here. If we really try to understand what it is about music that has the appeal that it has, that has the impact that it has, some of the things that you write about, we've got to go back pretty far to begin to examine it. Yes, music goes back uh, as far back as we can trace. Uh, They've found... uh, flutes that were made 30,000 years ago, and they were made very accurately. Somebody had scratched a little pattern on them to show where the holes go to uh, find out, uh, you know, to, to make sure that you got the right notes. And uh, one of the archaeologists who dug them up uh, actually made a model of one of them, a copy, and uh, when he played the notes, he found that he could play the Star Spangled Banner on it, because it plays a pentatonic scale, which is one of the scales you, we use nowadays. And th- th- that's 30,000 years ago, so we can, be, we can be assured that Music goes back a lot further than that. Mm-hmm. And as you began to understand it, as you've researched this for so long, talk a little bit about what the underlying appeal is. What is that, that drive that, that attracts people to it? Well, there are thousands of different drives that, 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 that push us towards music uh, and make us enjoy it. Um, I think one of the most interesting things is the question of why music exists because uh, the, 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 uh, the reason why we love it must be embedded in, in that question. And uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you can imagine that your body has like an inner pharmacy, which uh, hands out chemicals or drugs, if you like, uh, depending uh, on what circumstances you're under. If you've just been frightened, your pharmacist will hand out uh, things like uh, adrenaline and cortisol. And if, in modern society, uh, we quite often get uh, this fight, uh, fight or flight response when we can't fight or fly. We can't run away or fight. And that can build up stresses in our bodies. Uh, and cortisol, one of the chemicals involved, actually tells your body not to bother about damage. Adrenaline gives you, gives you energy. Cortisol also gives you energy. But cortisol just says, don't worry about the damage. Let's just deal with the situation. And if you can't deal with the situation by running away or fighting, if you're stuck in your office and your boss has been shouting at you and you're all upset, then you'll eventually get stressed, and long-term stress, the cortisol telling your body not to, not to worry about damage, will mean that you'll eventually get ill with, with the stress. And that can lead to depression, and depression is a cycle of depression and negative thoughts. Uh, you know, negative thoughts make you depressed, and when you're depressed, you have negative thoughts, and so on. And it's been found that music can actually break that cycle. Uh, and so music has this control of your inner pharmacy, as I say, uh, and it can cut down the amount of uh, adrenaline in your system and the cortisol, and it can help you um, become unstressed completely. 
A psychologist uh, called Susan Hanser did a test uh, for eight weeks with people, uh, teaching them to relax with music and use music for exercise. And they used biofeedback devices as well to just watch the blood pressure and heart rate change. And she found that within eight weeks, um, the people involved dropped to a perfectly normal level of stress uh, and they weren't depressed anymore. Um, so there's lots of medical ways we can use music and just these medical things uh, show us a lot about why we love it in normal everyday life. What do, we uh, underst- what do we understand about how it works chemically, physiologically? Well, we, we've only monitored that it does work so far, really. Um, uh, you know, the, the, you, if, let's take uh, insomnia, for example. Uh, if you can't sleep properly, if you're having trouble going to sleep, it's taking you a long time to drop off to sleep. Most, uh, most people fall asleep between, in, in between 15 and 35 minutes. If it takes you longer than that, it usually means that your, the level of noradrenaline in your system is too high. Now, noradrenaline is a, a chemical we give ourselves to make ourselves vigilant. So if you have a high level, you're vigilant. And if you're vigilant, you can't go to sleep. Uh, so in, in another set of experiments, uh, a psychologist called Laszlo Harmert and his team took 94 students who were very poor sleepers and divided them into three groups gave one group uh, 45 minutes of classical relaxing music to listen to just before bed. Uh, another group had uh, audio book to listen to, basically listening to stories before they went to bed, uh, went to sleep. And the other three, uh, the other group didn't get anything. So what happened then is that after only uh, a few weeks of listening to relaxing classical music, uh, 30 out of 35 of the music listening group became good sleepers. That's 90%. So 90% of them stopped being insomniac uh, simply because the music was, was reducing the amount of noradrenaline in their system. Uh, in the case of the audio book, uh, only one third of the people involved became good sleepers uh, because obviously audio books are a bit more um, interesting. You, you don't actually drop your vigilance level if you listen to a story. So uh, you know, it's been shown many times that relaxing music actually genuinely relaxes you by changing your body chemistry. Talk a little bit about the nexus between the positive impact that it has, the therapeutic impact that you've been talking about, and really our love of it. Certainly there are lots of things that are good for us that we don't love or appreciate in the same way. What's the nexus here? Yeah, well, I, I can bring you back to this, this, um, this chemical thing. Um, dopamine uh, is a uh, and serotonin are pleasure drugs you know that, that we give ourselves um and really a serotonin is uh, a chemical that we give ourselves to reward ourselves for doing things that are good for us like uh, eating a sandwich because that's good for you you get a, a pleasure effect from it and of course human beings need these feedback systems otherwise they wouldn't last very long i mean we survive because we have this uh, reward system which says yes you did something great there feel good about it uh, and it's been found that music actually triggers the serotonin release as well. So we, we get a genuine, measurable pleasure response from listening to music, as long as we're enjoying the music, of course. And, and talk a little bit about that. Why, then, the variations in the kind of music that people enjoy is so different, and yet the results are often the same? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, a lot of this in the Western world comes down to our teenage years. Uh, we fall in love particularly strongly with music between the ages of about 15 and 23. And this is the time at which we're sort of building our personality. 
Uh, if you were, if you'd been born in 1750 or 1850 uh, as the son or daughter of a farmer, or uh, you know a, a blacksmith or something, then everybody in your community would know what you're going to be doing in 20, 30 years' time. There was no need to design yourself a personality. But nowadays it's a lot more difficult, a lot more difficult because we have loads of choices of what we can do with our lives, and so we, because we have so many choices. We pick a group of friends, or they pick us, and um, all of us together then choose a genre of music which we, uh, we love because we want to be cool. We want to be warmly accepted by a group of friends. Now, cool is not a trivial thing. Cool uh, is basically a shorthand way of saying acceptance in your peer group. So um, how cool you are depend, it can determine uh, how sexually attractive you are. It can determine how much you get promoted at work. Uh, it can even... Um, have a strong effect on uh, your physical uh, safety because if you're cool nobody will bully you <laughs> so you and your friends have got this uh, genre of music which is cool and also there's a side effect to this which is that uh, if you and your group of friends have your own little band you've discovered it's a great disappointment if they become popular into the mainstream big time because they were yours and part of being cool is that you must exclude everybody else from your uh, from your cool group so, it, in, a, in a way, it doesn't really matter what the music is. Music's all, all music is, is lovable and beautiful. Uh, you just have to get used to it. And getting used to it, you start, um, as you listen to a genre for uh, many times, you get used to what it's going to do next and so on. And you, and you make forecasts of where the music will go next, what sort of chords you might expect, what sort of melody line you might expect. We're all really expert listeners. And we become expert listeners simply by listening to the stuff. Um, and in, in the same way as we're expert listeners to listening to conversation, uh, if I suddenly say wombat, you didn't expect that because it's, it's not part, you understand what it means, but it's not part of what you're expecting. And so in the musical genres that you start to love, you, you start making correct assumptions about what's going to happen next, uh, generally in your teens and early 20s. You fall in love with the music. It doesn't really matter what the genre is, as long as your friends and your your your, your peer group uh, accept that, that that's the that's the thing you're going for. You could move city at the age of twelve and suddenly end up with a group of people who enjoy bluegrass music, whereas you, back in the, the city where you came from, it might be heavy metal. What do we know, or what do we understand about those individuals that aren't impacted by it at all, that really have no affinity for it at all? Well. I think they're, they're usually uh, what, we, what we could call tone deaf. And that is a, a medical problem, basically. Um, on a piano keyboard, uh, most people can tell, if you play one note and the note next to it, you, most people can tell which note is higher and which note is lower. And that's how we organize our memory of tunes. Uh, generally, there are seven or eight notes in play at any one time uh, during the course of a piece of music, and that's called the key. And we can remember and hum and repeat the melodies and so on. Um, somebody who's actually toned deaf, that jump is too small for them to distinguish whether the note's going to pour down. And so the whole thing is very blurry for them. They have to estimate, you know, and you can play, you, you can, you know, play one note, duh, and then the next note, duh, and they can't tell whether it's going to pour down. So they have no real appreciation of what's going on with the music. 
Is is it just that, or is there is there something else? People that, as you say, in those teenage years, in those fifteen to twenty three years, just have you know no association with it. That there is no connection with it. Well, people vary in this uh, as they do in, in many other things. Um, there have been tests using brain scanners where they've found that certain people have very strong responses to music. Uh, you, you can see their brain light up, and. Um, Lots of us have uh, sort of shiver down the back feeling sometimes or the hair standing up on your arms uh, when you hear certain pieces of music, um, generally romantic pieces of music, but uh, all things that we, we remember. Uh, and the, uh, if you have people at that end of the spectrum, you have to have people at the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. who are not really bothered by music at all. Uh, I, I, heard a lecturer, I heard a lecturer at the weekend who was talking about groups of music students and she would ask them at the beginning of the year, they were, they were, they were studying music psychology, and they, she'd say, right, which of you uh, really couldn't stand it if music didn't exist? And she'd see a, a big show of hands. But there'd always be one or two people in the room who would respond positively to the question, mm-hmm. and who of you, you know, if, music, if you were told music was going to go away forever tomorrow, uh, which of you would be not that bothered about it? And she got, um, you know, there's always one or two people in the room who really weren't uh, moved in that way. Mm-hmm. It's, a bit like, it's a bit like foodies, you know. I'm not particularly a foodie. I, I love Indian food, mm-hmm. but European food is generally much of a much, muchness to me. But I've got friends who absolutely adore the difference between Italian and French cooking, and I can hardly see it myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I'm missing in that respect. Um, but I'm one of the people that loves music particularly. One of the other aspects of it is the fact that it is partly as a result of what we've been talking about. It is so pervasive. It is so much of how we experience the world today. Yes, we do get it piped at us quite a lot uh, in shops and so on and uh, in restaurants. And that on some occasions that can be quite irritating if, if you don't like the music or it's inappropriate music. One of the worst things that happens is uh, if you have a, a restaurant for the over 50s uh, who want to sit and chat and listen to, you know, calming jazz, and the manager is a bit lazy about the music situation and lets the staff choose the music. If that happens, you end up having completely inappropriate music. And then the worst, to add insult to injury, the 23-year-old staff turn the music up because they're enjoying it. So you end up with completely um, bizarre combination of people trying to chat over... Uh, sort of techno music or whatever it happens to be that day. Talk a little bit about the way music has changed and, and the ways in which it kind of sociologically reflects changes in society, and in many cases it's the influence with respect to changes in society. Well, it depends whether you go back centuries or just decades. Um, uh, you know, like a, uh, 100, 100 years ago or so, there'd have been more musicians around because um, you had to make your own fun, as they say in those days. And uh, so people had pianos and would learn them. And, uh, but concerts in those days, and uh, obviously there wasn't any recorded music, most stuff by, say, Beethoven and Mozart was only designed to be listened to once or twice because it, it was such a rare thing to go to a concert. Um, so music has changed that way. That, that now it's readily available to, to anybody 24 hours a day. Um, and it, it can have effects from making us excited to... Uh, making us sleepy, uh, and it can be used therapeutically. For, you know, as I said earlier about the insomnia thing, um, 
I play loop music every evening when I go to bed, and uh, I drift off and sleep better for, for that. Mm-hmm. Loops are very useful in this because they don't have a very wide dynamic range. So they, they never produce lumpy noises, and you can always drift off to sleep to them, mm-hmm. although they're beautiful in their own right as well. But um, as far as music changing, there's been a, a big increase in, in dance and techno, techno music since the, the 90s, of course. Um, and before that, uh, music was aimed at a different, not before the 90s, but if you go back to the, to the 30s and 40s, music was more aimed at uh, middle-aged people. Uh, and then it's become more the, the province of uh, teenagers since about the 50s. Talk a little bit about the m- mood impact of it and the influence that, that happy music or sad music or fast or slow, the difference that those things, the impact that that has in how we react to it in the ways you've been talking about. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, the, the, the music which is basically lively uh, gives you a small shot of adrenaline uh, and serotonin because you are um, it makes you happy and adrenaline because the the, the fast beat of the music uh, makes you uh, makes your heart go a, bit, a little bit faster and so you start taking on the attributes of someone who's exercising uh, and so as I said in my earlier comments that this inner pharmacy thing can be triggered so you you, you can get the the pleasure and the excitement of fast music and you get pleasure and relaxation from uh, from slow music. Uh, and because nearly all the genres work as well as any other genre, so long as you like the genre involved, uh, there's not much more detail than that. Um, th- th- there has been a, a lot of discussion through uh, in psychological um, circles and everywhere else about the difference between major and minor keys, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... What you have to consider is that in in a piece of music there there is the the tempo, there is the key, uh, there is the harmony, uh, there's the melody, and so on. There's the volume as well, and whether it's high or whether it's low. Now all these things, low or high in pitch, I mean, all these things have a sort of vote to whether the music is going to make you feel chirpy and happy, or relaxed, or sad, or whatever. And although uh, people do think that minor music is sad, it's only a small vote, the minor, minor major key thing. There's a much bigger vote, and that comes from the speed of the music. Uh, and that's why uh, Spanish music, uh, flamenco music, which is often played in minor keys, but it's still exciting and fun, uh, the fact is that it's rather fast. And if it's fast, that outranks every other consideration. And so minor music that's played quickly is no longer sad. Talk about the mathematics of music, because we always think about this connection between music and mathematics, and, and the one reinforcing the other on a skill level basis. That's <laughs> a very interesting one, actually. Um, I was surprised by the result. I, I spent four years researching this book and read lots and lots of books and papers. And uh, I'm a scientist and a musician, and I've always had people coming up to me saying, "Oh, yes, science and music go well, very well together." Uh, you know, that's that's why you're good at music, is because you're a scientist, da 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 And I always believed them. I always thought it was true. I never gave it very much thought, but I just assumed it was true. But having read the textbooks on the subject, I can tell you now that it's a complete urban myth. Uh, there is no relationship between being skilled at maths and being skilled at music, or vice versa. This has been tested. In 2009, they surveyed 7,000 people to find out if there was a relationship, and found there wasn't. And a, a different... Uh, 
um, bunch of experimenters looked at the, um, they actually surveyed the American Mathematical Association and the American Modern Languages Association, both of which have many uh, thousands of members. And they found that, that musicality was exactly the same in both groups. So there's, there was no relationship between maths and music. Uh, there's no relationship between modern, modern languages and music either. It's just basically, if it, 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 one possible explanation for the, for the urban myth could be that uh, people who um, work quietly on their own, which musicians have to do if they want to practice, uh, would be good at most uh, intellectual activities. So you could pick anything at random. And there aren't many musicians around per capita, and there aren't many mathematicians around. So somebody came up with the idea that um, these two skills are linked, but mm -hmm. in fact they're not. What is the aspect of music that has to do with familiarity, the fact that we like to hear things that are so familiar to us? Well, it's quite straightforward, really. Um, it, it's a bit like you, you want to hear conversations you're familiar with as well. Uh, you know, I hang out with a certain bunch of people and we have certain sorts of conversation and I, I'm familiar with what's likely to be coming up next. And that makes me uh, confident about my surroundings and what's going on. And as you listen to a particular genre of music, your favorite genre, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, orchestral uh, Beethoven or whether it's bluegrass banjo, um, you have a set of expectations which are being continuously uh, rewarded. Uh, this, the, the music might be the actual piece of music might be new to you, and that will cast a, a different sort of set of shadows over over what you're listening to. You'll, it'll be a slightly different view of what what's going on, but it'll probably be pleasant because you've got this whole library in your head of what's likely to be coming up next. And we don't generally uh, get very surprised by music uh, if if it's in a genre that we're familiar with. Occasionally, you'll get a surprise, but it'll only be a, a small surprise, not a shock. And you probably enjoy it because it's just adding, adding an extra layer to your um, understanding and, and love of what's going on. Uh, what does happen, we all have a, um, a sort of optimum complexity level to the music we listen to. And this changes as we get older. Because if you listen, if you listen to blues all your life, uh, or punk or whatever it happens to be, uh, then as you get older, you, your library of expectations is so um, well organized that you can't be surprised anymore and things become a bit boring. So the whole genre starts becoming boring for you. So quite often people in their 30s start looking for more complicated genres like jazz and uh, classical. And that's why you often find uh, somebody who loved punk when they were 17 uh, likes Bach when they're 37. But this has a, an extra bit of interesting information, is that this is the reason <clears throat> why sometimes you, you have find a, a single on the radio and you love it. You listen to it two or three times and you absolutely love it. And then after about the 30th time, you think, I don't want to listen to this anymore, ever, driving around the bend. What's happened is that you're, when you first listen to any piece, piece of music, uh, its complexity level is artificially high because you don't know it. You, have, you, you, don't, you, you don't know what's going next. You're having to guess. and it's, So it's a bit more complicated for you to listen to than if you know it. And so um, if you listen to it 30 times, you now know it well. It's got no other, none of that extra newness or complexity. And so it falls off. It falls out of your range of being interesting and it becomes too boring for you. So gradually it goes from being optimal uh, complexity down to being too simple and you just forget about it.
Are we getting to a point where we know enough about how people react to music that it can be used more and more for manipulation, that if you play a certain kind of music in a certain kind of store, people will feel a certain way, people will potentially buy more or do something or react in certain ways? Yes, yes. Uh, this is actually of interest to a lot of people, obviously, store owners and, and, and uh, restaurant owners. Uh, and it is true, the, the general um, result is that if you choose the music carefully, you can increase your turnover by about 10%. Um, the, a couple of uh, people did an experiment in, in, in a, it was in a supermarket in, in, um, in England. Uh, in the supermarket, there was a wine area. And a couple of uh, these guys uh, took over the end of aisle display in the uh, wine area and divided the shelves uh, left and right into French and German. They chose the wine so that it was um, the same price and it was a similar sort of taste. And they put a German flag above the German wine and a French flag above the French wine. And then they put a speaker on the top uh, of this uh, set of shelves. Uh, and they just, all they did from then on was change the music and watch what happened to the tills at the checkout. So if they played German sort of uh, Bavarian umpar music, they sold twice as much German wine as French. And if they changed the music to being Parisian cafe music, uh, then they sold five times as much French as German, which means there's an order of magnitude difference. This is a, a really big difference. And if they played classical music, people bought the most expensive wine because it makes, classical music makes you feel sophisticated, apparently. Uh, and then what they did was interview people as they came out of the shop. Uh, and, and they asked them, did the music have any effect on your purchase choice? And nearly everybody that was asked that question said, what music? Because they hadn't even heard the music. They had no idea it was affecting their behavior. Mm. So yes, music can, can affect your behavior. In, in restaurants, uh, slow music makes you chew more slowly. It makes you spend longer over your meal. And it also makes you spend more on drink, uh, up to 50% 50, 50 more on drinks. So if you've got a slow moving restaurant then you know the slow music will make people spend more. But if you've got um, a sort of fast restaurant, then you don't want to be. You want more people in your restaurant. You don't want the individual spending more individually. So you can manipulate people's uh, attitudes to the to the room they're in and to what they're doing, just by changing the the genre and the speed of the music involved. What don't we understand about music? What is the cutting edge in terms of research now? What do, what do people, uh, what do you want to understand? What do, what do your colleagues want to understand about the impact of music? Well, I think we've got the general picture about right now, uh, about what, what happens with music, but it's, it's the detail that's very important. And uh, we know a lot of, we know the answer to a lot of the um, uh, how questions. How do, or, do I mean how, or do I mean... I'll say that again. We, yeah, just one second. I'll sure. get this right. Um, yes, we, sorry. We know, we know the answer to a lot of what questions. What happens when a certain piece of music plays to, to this particular individual, and what happens with this genre of music is played to people in general? So fast music does certain things to the brain, slow music does other things. But we don't know a lot of the why questions. So I think that will be the next step, is to, is to look at um, the, the, the fine detail of what's going on. John Powell, his book is Why You Love Music, From Mozart to Metallica. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks very much, Jeff. It was good fun. Thank you.